Since the Royal Academy of Music was founded in 1822, its aim has been to shape the future of music by discovering and nurturing talent wherever it exists. We're proud of our story and the people who helped to make it. And to mark our bicentenary, we've created a podcast series to celebrate and uncover some of the stories of those people, past and present, that resonate throughout our building and define the institution. Someday he'll come along The man I love And he'll be big and strong The man I love Here's a taste of what's to come. History, surprising tales, and always at the heart of whatever we do, glorious music. You'll hear about some of the famous people who have passed through our doors, as well as those whose musical lives might have been overlooked but deserve to be told, and you'll meet some of the people working and studying here today. Welcome to Short Stories, 200 Years of the Royal Academy of Music. I think the Academy should be justifiably proud of having accepted female students from the very beginning. Right back in 1822, there was no question that female students should ever be excluded when that clearly wasn't the case in other educational institutions. Um, And female teachers as well were included from the very beginning. The first scholarships were set up in 1834, I think, in the name of the King, William IV., and they were declared to be for two female and two male students each time they were awarded. So the Academy has a long history of being very equal in its treatment of men and women in the terms of the day, I think. It wasn't entirely equal. The female and male students were taught in separate parts of the building and and never the twain shall meet. And the female teachers were only teaching on the female side whereas the men could teach on either. So it wasn't entirely equal, but it was, it, it was pretty good for the standard of the day, I think. One major difference between the boys and the girls in that early intake is the instruments that they were allowed to learn. Bryony Williams is a postgraduate tutor and lecturer at the Royal Academy of Music, She also runs a historical blog about women musicians and composers called Salon Without Boundaries. Certainly in the early years of the Academy, the girls have an entirely different syllabus and an entirely different timetable to boys. It's much reduced, both in content and in time. They have more rest time in there. They can only do singing, piano and harp and organ comes a little bit later. Whereas the boys, of course, had all the instruments of the orchestra. They didn't have harp because that was seen as a bit frowned upon for boys to play at that point. 
there were no women playing orchestral instruments at the Royal Academy until 1872, when the first three female violinists arrived. Frederick Corder, a student and later professor of composition, of whom we'll be hearing more later, recalls seeing his first lady violinists in the Academy Orchestra in 1873, although he seems most struck by his fellow students' long hair and good looks. The front portion of the drawing room was filled with rows of wooden school benches. On these sat intermittently while waiting for their individual lessons a hundred or so of remarkably good-looking young ladies. The Academy standard of female beauty has always been high. The orchestra included two lady violinists who must have been nearly the first of their sex to appear in public. Miss Gabrielle Vaillant, the plait of whose hair I remember touched to the floor, and Miss Julia Denolte. In the midsummer 1969 edition of the Royal Academy of Music magazine, a top 20 list of the most requested scores and records from the Manson Room was published. At number one was Boulez's Le Marteau Sans Maître, with strong showings for Stockhausen, Schoenberg and Stravinsky, whose right of spring was in at number 15. article concludes with a challenge. Why stick to the egg and chips of the musical world? Why not come and taste the exotic fare on display? It would be wise to appreciate modern music now and to learn to like it in preparation for the year 2001, when Beethoven and Brahms may well be performed as rarely as Stockhausen and Boulez are today. Edward Gardner conducted this performance of the Rite of Spring by the combined student forces of the Royal Academy of Music and the Juilliard School, New York. Despite the prediction for 2001, the only work on this list that is absolutely core repertoire is the Rite of Spring. What makes it so different? It wasn't the most musically radical thing that Stravinsky had written. What he manages to do is to shock us as performers and audiences, but also allow us in with an accessibility that we can process what it is that's shocking us. When you're standing in front of an orchestra for the Rite of Spring, you're pretty overpowered by the the range of colours, actually, not just by the strength of the music. It's a huge orchestra, and you feel like there are waves of energy coming out at you. A lovely thing I did in the past is to have 
children sitting within the orchestra when you rehearse Rite of Spring, and they are completely overwhelmed. You know, a generation who are used to loud music on headphones, they're overwhelmed by the sheer force and the vibrations of what that piece can bring. Cohen's reputation dwindled in the decades after World War II, but a recent release of remastered historical recordings means we can hear her play and imagine ourselves into her dazzling company. You know what Bernard Shaw said? What? There's only one Harriet. Referring to? Me. <laughs> did he? Yes, he did. I think that's a very great Has honor. he been to Gloucester House Muse? Gloucester Place Muse. Gloucester oh, Place yes. Muse. We were very intimate friends since I was about 17. And... Um, I mean, sometimes he could be a little bit, what's the word, um, sharp on you. He could be quite critical. But I think he was very fond of me, if I may say so. And even though I lost most of my possessions by bombing, I still got about 65 letters from him. Famous as she was in the music world, she also had a bit of a bohemian social life and would mix with intellectuals, again, household names, H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw were amongst her closest friends, Albert Einstein. She seems to have mixed with some of the most famous literary and cultural figures of the 20th century. Harriet left thousands of letters after her death in 1967, many of them chronicling her friendships and love affairs with famous men. But she also had strong friendships with women. The photographs and portraits we have of Harriet and there are at least 80 in the National Portrait Gallery, are so fabulous and sexy, and her lifestyle so bracingly racy, that that is sometimes where people stop looking. Well, I've noticed that whenever people talk about Harriet Cohen, they get very sidelined by her relationships, which is a sort of classic way of looking at a high-achieving female artist, really. You start talking about who they've had... Um, intimate relationships with, which I think is not only boring, but it's actually very reductive of someone who is clearly creative and lyrical and uh, luminous. Joanna McGregor is a concert pianist, curator, conductor and head of piano at the Royal Academy of Music. Anybody who's talking about a male or female, they unconsciously or not, they do the male gaze thing and they go, oh, she was very glamorous, she was very beautiful, very aware of image, she had a lot of relationships. And then they overlook, actually, the playing, the commissioning, the long career, um, the political stuff she achieved during the 30s and 40s and her political friends. Um, so for me, it's just, you know, they treat her like Marilyn Monroe or something, which is very disappointing. In the last few years before he died, Edmund travelled back to the United States where he was thwarted in his attempts to set up a black symphony orchestra and music school. He returned to Paris. There he led another dance orchestra, set up a music publishing house and wrote his first opera. In 
1925, he had Charlestonia premiered at the Cursal Ostende and had another work accepted for performance in France. He seemed tantalizingly on the brink of a breakthrough, and it's hard to know what he might have done next, how his music might have developed, and where his entrepreneurial spirit would take him. He was admitted to hospital in Paris in July 1926 and died of causes unknown on September the 12th. For Julius Williams, Edmund's story remains important. People don't know that there was somebody studying at the Royal Academy during that time, writing this type of music coming from South Carolina. It's kind of like, are you serious? <laughs> you know, the, you know, somebody from South Carolina uh, playing in a band, and then all of a sudden he goes to the Royal Academy uh, doing concerts and performances. So amazing that most of the people in America don't know that. In fact, if you ask them who Edmund Jenkins is, nobody would know. You know, a lot of the people who are teaching African-American music in schools wouldn't know who Edmund Jenkins is. You know, we're talking about Florence Price, but we're talking about somebody from 1916, 1917, 1918. This is a big fine. And when I tell my students that there was people doing this in 1917, 1916, they, they can't believe it. Because in their mind, the only thing they think is that black people may have written some jazz pieces and pop pieces, but they don't see that they were writing concert music. That's why it's important. In a climate-controlled glass case, a few steps from the Luthier's workshop is the most stunning instrument in the collection, a Stradivarius violin that was made in Cremona in 1709 and was later named after the Italian virtuoso Giovanni Battista Viotti, who moved to London in 1792. It's an instrument that the Canadian violinist and guest professor James Ennis knows and loves. I've been lucky to see the instrument a lot and play on it a good amount and every time I open the case it sort of takes my breath away <laughs> with just how how just beautiful it is you know how sometimes you see those movies you know that the protagonist will open up the chest of treasure and it's it's underlit right <laughs> that's sort of the way it feels with this thing like it, it just it it, it has uh, an internal glow to the to the varnish that is just kind of unlike almost anything else. that no one has played a note on this since the last time I played it, which was in November of 2019. <laughs> Can you explain why you, why you think that? Well, first of all, I know the way that they take care of the collection here. Uh, but it, you, you'd get a sense of, of, you know, an instrument being a little bit 
rigid when it has not kind of flexed. You know, the, the, the amazing thing about the tables of these instruments is they're extremely flexible this way and extremely rigid that way. So um, I think basically, you know, wood sits long enough and it doesn't, it doesn't vibrate and it has, or it doesn't vibrate in the same way. And it has a slightly taut feeling to it that um, starts to waken up and gain a little bit of flexibility as the wood is vibrating more. Uh, the table, when I refer to the table, that's basically the top of an instrument. Um, I don't know why they call it the table. You wouldn't want to put a drink on it, but there you have it. It's like a spring, you know, if a, if a spring has just been sitting, it, it's not as springy. <laughs> you know, it gets a, a little bit more flexible as it's moved. It always sounds beautiful, <laughs> but there's a an immediacy that becomes, it, it gets quicker with the response the more that it's played. <laughs> 